Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. 2 p.m. Eastern, that's your main event. The Federal Reserve decides Chairman Powell delivers a news conference shortly thereafter. Joining Tom and I in the studio, I'm pleased to say, here in New York, Tony Crescenzi, PIMCO market strategist and portfolio manager. Good morning to you, Tony. Morning, Sean. Thanks for having me here. Will they or won't they cut interest rates in a couple of hours' time? Yes, we think it's highly probable the Federal Reserve did nothing to dissuade the markets from thinking there'll be a, a move. And we know from our conversations that we have regularly with Ben Bernanke that when the market has a very high probability of a certain action that the Federal Reserve need follow through with it in what could be called the Hall of Mirrors effect, where the market's looking at the Fed and the Fed's looking back at the markets and they have to mirror what the markets are doing. So the probability of what the markets have in for a hike is 90%. That's too high for the Fed to say no today. What's a hawkish cut? A mistake uh, in this climate. A hawkish cut would be where the Fed cuts and then it does something like it's done in the past where it looks back and says, well, with these three cuts now we think things will be fine. So if they look back at the cuts and speak to what they've done, and uh, that would be a hawkish okay, cut. Okay, cut to the day. Chairman Powell's going to be in the crucible of the press conference. Let's be honest, a third of the questions yeah. make sense. The rest Especially are Especially from Michael McKee. What's the question you want to ask so he can define this new phrase, hawkish cut? They are, were good. Are you going, they, after, are you going after the press I'm today? I'm going after the press today. Hawkish cut opened for Jethro Tull about 22 years ago. They were great. Hawkish cut. How do you phrase that to the chairman in a constructive way? One can. Michael McKee will be one of the best to yes, he Bloomberg's will. Michael McKee will ask the question. But uh, you would expect that Powell be evasive on the idea that the Federal Reserve is finished and that this potentially is simply a mid-cycle insurance-like adjustment. He will do everything he can to leave his options open. And so uh, yeah. the, those in the room asking him questions to try to push and say, do you really mean to tell us that you are open to another cut in December on the 11th when you meet again? Or, or are you just trying to uh, have us think uh, there'll be more cuts? Most likely, um, to be straight, uh, the Fed in this optionality, in the statement, it'll probably say something to the effect of what it said last time in its policy meeting, that it'll continue to monitor the implications of incoming data and act as appropriate. That still could mean doing nothing, and so it's it's okay to say we are open to another cut and not actually follow through with it. And markets, importantly, are only priced for 30 basis points more in cuts between now and the end of next year. So you're saying for, there's not that much tension between the market 30 basis and Fed forecasts no. right now. The, and he, so Powell's been put in a very good position by the rise in market interest rates recently and the re-steepening of the yield curve. I want to, John, three months tens, I did a very careful study of it today. And we are now out where the question, as I said to Mr. Cosenzi earlier, have we broken the curve flattening cycle? You've got to be That's really key. careful, though, now, because the Fed is buying T-bills. And Tony, I just wonder if we can't take signal from when it, the curve was inverting, whether we can take any signal now the curve is steepening from a three-month T-bill 
at the longer end. To an extent, but the purchases haven't happened in any meaningful size yet. And when the, the problems will become acute more in January or so, when the amount of bills available to be bought will be low. And so when the Fed is out there buying, yes, it will have an impact on the curve. So a three-month T-bill, one-month T-bill, especially two-month, can't possibly be impacted by future Fed purchases because these T-bills will have matured. And so we would say that the steepening relates more to confidence in the Fed, confidence in democracy and capitalism to the extent that uh, this faith that um, companies, people will wake up each and every day and try to make a better living for themselves and produce a better economic outcome. How? With um, policy uncertainty down a little. And I emphasize a little on Brexit and China. Well, let's talk about that. Since the end of August, the beginning of September, when the 10-year Treasury yield bottomed out for 2019, risks have receded. So repricing markets make sense. Now, whether risks have diminished to the degree that you think that everything is behind us, that the worst is behind us, and that things are going to gradually get better from here on out, I guess it's a very different judgment call. Where do you come down on that, Tony, at the moment? As you know, John, in your home country, in the UK, even if Brexit, if the election goes as Boris Johnson wants on December 12th, Frank Sinatra's birthday, by the way, uh, (laughs) big day, December 12th. Good morning to to Staten Island. I have to say that as an Italian. if it goes as expected and it goes well and Brexit and and the UK does leave the European Union, as you know, there's a transition period and there'll be a lot of squabbles about that and a lot of uncertainties that could cause businesses to say, well, I'm not so sure about the future because trade agreements between the UK and the rest of Europe will have to be rewritten. A lot of things will have to be rewritten and no one will know what the writing will be. And so there'll be uncertainties there and also with China because it is an election year in the United States and there will be, uh, it is a bipartisan issue and so will be, there will be tensions in, uh, remaining through the election. And in the meantime, Tony, people are starting to load up on risk just a little bit incrementally once again. High yield spreads, the tightest of the year in and around those kind of levels now, 350 basis points. Good friend of yours, Mr. Iverson, in the FT this week saying we don't like corporate credit risk. Why doesn't PIMCO like corporate credit risk right now? Uh, Dan Iverson, our group CIO, has identified, and as we all have, that the corporate credit markets, the riskiest part of the fixed income market. It has to do with something that happened in the... Uh, that's endemic to the markets in general that happened in the money market, that the intermediaries, those who get between the buyer and the seller, aren't playing the traditional role. And in other words, you saw in the money market when interest rates on the short-term part of the bond market uh, moved up toward 10%. uh, That was because intermediaries decided, well, we're not going to participate in the way we used to. This could happen in the corporate bond market. At a time when there's a large amount of risk transfer, in other words, when investors go to sell corporate bonds someday when they have a reason to do so, and typically this is a recession risk, uh, who is it that will be taking these hot potatoes? Uh, Each primary dealer, those who uh, do a lot of this intermediation, will say, I don't want it. You have it. You take it. You think there's real liquidity risk in the corporate credit market in the United States? There's... The problems in the in the money market are endemic to the financial markets in general because intermediaries are due to uh, regulatory changes 
uh, are unwilling to house inventory. Think of it this way. They're no longer in the storage business. They're in the moving business. They will not hold inventories. They will not hold the securities that the world wants to sell right. to them. And so well, that's what the worry is. Real quickly here then. You're saying that the repo uproar and the raging debate over this can fold over into longer duration fixed income assets. To all all types of fixed income okay. securities because of the lack of liquidity in these other areas. If it happened in yeah. the treasury market, it can happen in the corporate bond market where you, many securities trade by appointment. Frank Sinatra? It's December 12th, oh. the, uh, the same day as uh, the UK election. And Lagarde's first the, ACB meeting. So too. he sings a song, famously, uh, uh, Old Man River keeps rolling along. So you could, uh, the best version ever, uh, in my opinion. I, I'd and, love uh, to hear one of you really sing it. emotional song. But uh, the idea is uh, capitalism, etc., keeps rolling along. The UK right. and democracy will keep rolling Are, along on that day. To, to get back to 2 p.m. this afternoon, is this going to be market moving when they start defining whatever in God's name a hawkish cut is? If Powell meets what is likely to be his objective, there'll be no movement in the financial markets because it's already priced for the idea that there could be a hawkish cut or that the Federal Reserve's three cuts might be enough with only about one more cut priced in between oh, now man. and the end of next year. So it should game. be a, a stable market. Yeah, well, we'll see. Tony Cosenzi, right. thank you so much. Tony, thank, thank you. Love. Greatly Great appreciate you. that as well. So I'm pleased to say we can bring in David Kirkpatrick of Techonomy, the CEO and founder and the author of that book you love. The Facebook Effect. It ends with Zuckerberg at the end of a driveway in California where his life is changing. David Kirkpatrick, I thought of that moment as you end your book, Elysiacly. And, and just to cut to the chase, how much of a train wreck on a Kirkpatrick meter was his testimony to Congress? I think it was a big train wreck. I mean, weirdly, people said... Um, it, it, you know, he performed well and some people liked it, but I think he doesn't know what to say in public because he's really unwilling to, to actually compromise in any fundamental where, way. Okay. Well, but he's a genius. Come on. He got where he got as you show in the Facebook effect, folks see it in theaters, uh, coming up, David, he's supposed to hand off the business stuff to other people. Has he done that? Well, yes, he has had. I mean, basically, all he cares about is is the product and growth, and growth, growth, growth. That's the mantra that Facebook has always had, and it continues to have, and that's his obsession. Um, you know, I, some people said in listening to his testimony that he didn't even seem to understand what Libra was supposed to be or how it was actually supposed to work. Um, you know, he didn't answer many of the toughest questions, uh, but but I I think it's. You know, when he goes to Washington, what he really wants is just people to understand that he's really doing a good thing. That's, in his mind, what it's all about. He believes he is a, a gift to the world. Facebook is a gift to the world that no. we just don't understand. And if he, he believes truly that if we just understood it, we wouldn't be so critical of him. That's what we say every day about John Farrow. David, it's always great to have you with us on the program. Tom and I have thought and talked about Inside Bill's Brain, which is this great documentary about Bill Gates on Netflix. And within that documentary, Bill Gates is asked about his performance down in Washington, D.C. in the 90s and through the yeah. early 2000s. And he uses one word to reflect on the younger Bill Gates, naive. 
Do you think Mark Zuckerberg is repeating the errors that Bill Gates made when he had to go to D.C. in the same way? Absolutely. I mean, it's funny how much Gates has changed. And yes, I absolutely think that analogy is completely apt. And the age is not too dissimilar. I think yeah. Gates was a little older at that time. So Zuckerberg, actually, Zuckerberg's probably mm, five to ten years younger now that I think of it than Gates was then. So, you know, his age, he's just so young. Let's face it, the guy's right. worth $75 billion at age 35 or 36. And um, I think that also, in his own mind, is a legitimizer of his behavior. Well, how could I be wrong if I'm so rich? I mean, really. So, you know, I I think there's a tragedy unfolding with this company that is of monumental and historic scale. David Kirkpatrick with us, a Facebook effect. David, there was a point in the dorms of Amherst College a few years ago where you walked in some rich kid's room and they had the Apple, you know, the Mac the little QB thing now in the Smithsonian. Since that's time, Apple has been rumored to die, what, 15 times? Every time is a product cycle. This is it. They're done. They're over. They're really once again proving the resiliency here based on the rumors on this new phone, right? Well, they are an astonishingly resilient company. You joked before I came on that you might have to run down to the Apple store again later today. I actually, I saw their new AirPod and I was thinking, you know, I have a perfectly good AirPod, but I'm so reliant on it. And if it worked even slightly better, my life would probably be better. Therefore, it's worth it to spend 250 bucks for a marginal increase of efficiency in my life. Yeah. I mean, Apple's products, I almost said Facebook, Apple's products are the source of, of digital efficiency in my life. And yeah. really, I mean, I might think I'm addicted. I might think that I'm overstressed because of all the things I do, but I need it. My work life depends on it. And Apple facilitates it and they do it with enormous uh, skill and can capability. I, I, mean, I mean, David, my entire team wears AirPods so they don't have to talk to me. You know, they stick them in their ear all day. So, you know, I think they're busy. You okay over there? I'm okay. Are you okay? <laughs> what are you, you know, looking at? I, Maria's on right now on Fox Biz with VetBill. Is that your dog? A, it's my dog. Maria That's borrowed dog. my dog. It's vet bill with a Superman costume how much, on. How much are you invoicing Fox Biz oh, no, for that? No, no, we, I'm not. You know, you know, vet bill's free to do what he wants. He's got an agent. Can I get back to the conversation? Please, with David Kirkpatrick <laughs> on Apple. It's I want to talk about Facebook earnings as well after the close. Any evidence so far, David, that the political spotlight on Mark Zuckerberg is damaging the bottom line? Not really. Uh, I mean, we've got to keep our ears closely attuned to that because obviously their costs of remediating the many harms they cause society are are raising their their costs generally a lot, uh, but not so much that it's really had a significant effect on a company whose profits are so monumental. So so I don't think we'll see significant harm uh, in today's earnings. I think, you know, Growth revenues are just powering forward, although you see a massive shift over time from the developed countries to the developing countries. I mean, really, Americans are not using Facebook as much as they used to. The same is true in Europe, and that is a significant long-term problem for them. On the other hand, even to the degree we use it, we remain perfect targets for advertising on Facebook because the advertisers don't have a better place to go, and that continues to be their ace in the hole. Well, David, let's explore the analogy and the parallels with Microsoft a little bit further. I forget the precise word you used, but it sounded like something like tragedy, and what was about to happen with Facebook wasn't going to end very well. With Microsoft, things have ended really, really well. In fact, arguably, they've got even better. Why does the movie end differently with Facebook? 
Well, I'm not sure that it does. I'm not saying Facebook inevitably will cannot respond to these social concerns and, and revive itself somehow, but I think the key would be for Zuckerberg to have some kind of fundamental revelation that he thus far has not had about his need to, to change course. And, you know, a changing course probably would also entail a significant hit to yeah. earnings over time, but then I think they could possibly rebuild from there. Look, they have a service people want to use, and it's growing in, a, in the largest sense, you know, on a planetary level. So I think they could revive, but I just don't think yet they have yeah. the humility or, as we said earlier, maybe the maturity to see what they need to do. February 2014, uh, John Farrell mentions Microsoft folks. David uh, Kirkpatrick, what are the best practices that Mr. Nadella did as he revolutionized modern Microsoft? Wow. Uh, gee, I didn't know you were going to ask about that. Uh, well, you know, I think... It's Satya a surveillance is, interview. Come all, on, I again, got Maria's dog into the interview. I'm doing okay. There's a humility at Microsoft that is... I, you know, I recently was uh, interviewing Brad Smith, who's the number two at Microsoft on yeah. stage, about his new book, which is really, really excellent, by the way. Uh, and it's, it, there's enormous humility to his book. Microsoft has... You know, I think you had to get rid of Balmer. Balmer was a great leader in some ways, but he had no humility. Uh, Satya recognizes the, the, that they are in a position that requires a bigger picture view, and somehow they had, you know, Balmer had positioned them in relation to the cloud, that he, the raw material was there, and Satya had been a big part of Brilliant. that before he became CEO. And, you know, they are now becoming, I think they're a genuine threat to Amazon at, as the dominant cloud player. I wouldn't, wouldn't rule out the possibility that over the next few years, Microsoft could be, grow equally strong and maybe even okay. stronger than Amazon. Amazon for a lot of reasons. If Amazon um, gets to very quickly, if Amazon gets to a million employees, is that a signal for the government to break up Amazon, break up Microsoft, break up Bloomberg surveillance? We're really jumping around. They, they want to yeah, they want to break this yeah, show. Up. I, I, I think huge. the government pressure to break these companies up is going to grow. Yeah. I'm not a strong believer that it's the right answer, but the pressure is real. I mean, but the problem with Amazon and really to some extent all these companies is even though everybody loves to complain about them and people in Washington hate their scale, the average American wants to use their services. And that's particularly true with Amazon. So politicians who start messing with Amazon are yeah. going to have to be very careful because customers, which are voters, yeah. are not going to want too much change. This has been wonderful, David. Thanks for a wide range Thank of you, briefing David. here this morning. Really, I'm glad you mentioned Facebook, seriously. Well, I was you like, underplayed yeah, that, a wide-ranging you know, interview. It was wide-ranging. I mean, you do it's that about with 25 Kirpatrick. different Kirpatrick, I had Paul Kodrowski and David Kirkpatrick on the day of the Facebook uh, IPO, and they were both brilliant. And Kirkpatrick nailed it. Facebook was going down in flames. And he said there is tangible growth, revenue, and profit. This is a really important interview. John's got a million questions for Ira Jersey of Fixed Income. Ira, three-month, 10-year spread. It's a pro spread. Everybody looks at it. Inver it inverted terribly. World's coming to an end. Summer into autumn, etc. It's come back out. The 10-year yield is higher than the three-month Treasury bill. Out two standard deviations off the president's election trend. Can you say there's a breakout now away from inversion and all that gloom? Well, I, I think, yes. 
yeah, the answer is yes, absolutely. Now, part of this is, has been engineered by the Federal Reserve because remember, the Federal Reserve is going to be buying, you know, sixty billion dollars of T bills uh, a month over the next couple of months, and in doing so, what they've done is that three month T bill yield has just dropped uh, a ton. So actually, on that day that they announced it, it dropped yeah. ten basis points. So it uninverted and it kept on uninverting, uh, you know, primarily because of the, the Federal Reserve doing, you know, I don't know what you want to call it, right. but you know. Not QE is what what Jay Powell said. Ira Jersey, where this is a fixed income, and the reason I was rattled, John, is because the only question I want to ask him is: when John and I go over to do the election in Britain, we got to delay and see Arsenal Man City. Oh, you know, sure. That weekend? Yeah, yeah. That'll that would be a fun match. Yeah, I'm you sitting here laughing because our producers go crazy at you for not introducing our guest properly. <laughs> we all know who Ira Jersey is it's, the star of the Fed decides. He'll be with us this afternoon. Ira Jersey of Bloomberg Intelligence. Here's our chief U.S rate strategist and it's great to have you with us ira good morning <laughs> good morning <laughs> should we talk about the fed decision a hawkish cut is that what you're looking for well, from so, chairman Powell? hawkish cut yeah so it would only be considered hawkish in in that like not hawkish in that the fed's next move is going to be hiking right so it's hawkish relative to not easing um so i would say it's more like like does the fed turn to neutral instead of being in an easing mode and i think that the market's set up for that so when you look at what the market's currently pricing. We're pricing a cut today and then not another cut until May or June of next year. So basically the market's priced for a long pause. And I think some of the details around whether or not that's a realistic outcome is something that the market's gonna listen to, particularly in the, the, uh, in the press conference afterwards. This is really important because typically we go into these kind of meetings with a little bit of tension between the market and the Fed. We're saying there's not much tension relative to previous meetings this time around. Well, it doesn't seem that way. You know, that being said, it it also is not, it's not out of the question that the Federal Reserve could wind up saying and sounding a little bit more dovish maybe than the market currently expects because you could point to a lot of data, like even the ADP data. It came out, uh, last month's data came out a little bit better than expected, but the prior month was revised down. So it actually winds up being closer to 100,000 print instead of 125,000 print. So that means, you know, if, if you're worried about the consumer, you know, jobs is a thing that you could point to that says, you know, it's still some fragility in the market. Do we have an information vacuum today at two because we're not getting all the other stuff we typically get at a Fed meeting? Uh, I, I don't think so. Maybe from 2 to 2.30, but you'll wind up having enough information. The, the I information think, after, will come out in the press after, after Jay Powell no starts dots, to speak. No dots, no forecasts. We know there's a ton of division on the FOMC. We see it in the dot plot. You see it I'm in the statement the chart often I just, John, as well. The chart I just put out on Twitter shows the division. So Ira, talk to me about how the division comes out in the news conference. Where is the challenge for Chairman Powell today? What's the biggest challenge? Well, first, I would not be uh, totally surprised if we saw one or two dissents of some members who didn't want to cut today. That would not surprise me at all. We saw a couple of them back in July. It would not be surprising if those same members ended up uh, dissenting again today. But that being said, you know, even if that happens, I think Jay Powell then has to go out and say, look, we have some members who think that the economy is not doing that badly and therefore we shouldn't be cutting. So, you know, we're, you know, we're going to be data dependent from this time forward. Are we cutting into negative real yields? Yes. Well, so so Are real we, yields actually have moved a little bit higher recently. Um, I missed so, that. Excuse yeah, me. So, so 10-year real yields went from negative five basis points to positive 10 basis points. So it's not a lot, but it's still enough to say that the market is expecting some modest but not slowing growth from this point forward. And that's, I think that's an important uh, important to this because 
what you saw basically from November of 2018 through the summer of this year was a slowing manufacturing sector that seems like maybe it's starting to stabilize a little bit. When you look at some of the survey data like ISM new orders, if that turns like it did in 2016, then we can wind up with a better economic environment going into 2020. Fascinating. It's thank really you. going to be a different, different afternoon today. It's, it's going to be just it's absolutely going to be fascinating. fascinating. Ira Jersey, thank you so much. With Bloomberg Intelligence. Right now, we're going to consider Westeros. It'll be reporting... Late on December 12th, Westeros will come in a little late. Oh, winter's the, coming. The, That's smart, Tom. Teresa Raphael's going right there. She's nailing it with the Game of Thrones theme on to December 12th. What's House Targaryen going to do here on December 12th, uh, Therese? Shall I do that thing where I introduce the guests first? <laughs> no, no, Therese no, come Raphael. come on, it's really Bloomberg original. Opinion. Let me try it. Let me try it. Okay. Bloomberg <clears throat> opinion columnist, Therese yeah, Raphael. Okay. She's fabulous, and she goes right to Jon Snow. Okay, what's going to happen with House Targaryen on December 12th? I did have a reader who sent me a note yesterday saying, uh, you know, the Remainers are the Lannisters. How can you write that? So uh, leaving, leaving aside, you know, who's going to benefit from this winter. But December 12th is... Uh, I would say the most important election Britain has had in a generation. It will determine not only uh, Brexit, not only the how and the when, but also really um, the shape of economic policy, uh, because we have two very different uh, parties, the, the government and the opposition, with a, with very divergent proposals for how to run the British economy. Um, I wouldn't say the conservative one is a traditional conservative government by any means. It's, it's uh, you know, they've, they've opened the spending taps, but the labor offering is very radical. And so I think the, the question for voters on December 12th is, is this a Brexit election or are they voting on something much bigger than that? Is this the first election where they become like Europe, where it's not just classically labor, Tory, but that finally it's three and four and five parties? Well, it did look for a while like this would be a sort of four-party race with the Conservatives, the Labour Party, the newly resurgent Liberal Democrat Party, and Nigel Farage's Brexit Party. Now, what's happened uh, after Boris Johnson sealed his new deal with the European Union is that the Brexit party has fallen back quite significantly in the polls. Um, they were around, I think, 11% the last uh, I looked. And we haven't heard a lot from Farage, but the conservatives are, you know, quietly and not so quietly telling him, look, back off. You want Brexit. We're delivering Brexit. It would be, you know, crazy to to run against our deal. And indeed, many Brexit party um, candidates and supporters are, you know, wavering. And some of them have said, look, this deal is, is good enough for us. So I think now we're down to maybe three parties. We don't think the Liberal Democrats are going to be strong enough to 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 get a majority by any uh, stretch. But I, there is a possibility that Remain parties, if they did well enough, could somehow cobble together a coalition. But really, at the moment, this is Boris Johnson's election to lose. Talk to me about the campaigning, Therese, the mistakes so many of us made, myself included, going into the last election in 2017, June of that year, was believing it would be a single issue election. Then the campaigning started and Jeremy Corbyn hardly talked about the EU and Brexit. Is this a lot more than just about Brexit this time around? I think it will. It's always more than about Brexit because 
you know, for voters in their day to day lives, what they really care about are, you know, how how crowded is their child's school classroom? Just Phillips, the labor MP, just stood up uh, in parliament and said, my son is turning 11. He can only go to school four and a half days a week. His classroom is, you know, 30 kids in it. What are you going to do about that? So labor will try to make this election about those issues that will that will undoubtedly yeah. resonate, but Labor's got a problem. Its Brexit policy is is a bit of a mess. Um, it, it, yeah. it entails a negotiation, a renegotiation. It entails a referendum, maybe two referendums, if they if if they uh, uh, join with the Scottish National Party, and that's not an easy sell. Trust you capture in your writing not only the elites of London and all the you know the hoity-toity stuff we look at every day, but also what the people are talking about. Take us away from, you know, the day-to-day madness of this. And for our American audience, explain, and you name the village, you name the town, you name the city. How are the people responding to December 12th? I think there was a time when people did not want another election. There had been, you know, four, three, four votes. You've had referendums. You had the 2017 election. At this point, they are so tired of the gridlock and parliament and hearing about Brexit. I think everyone is resigned to having a chance to change this parliament and move forward. But, you know, you want to talk about a town or a place where where it gets real? Wolverhampton in the Midlands, Brexit voting area, but labor supporting. So what do those voters do? Do they yeah, uh, go perfect. with Boris Johnson or do they stick with the Labor Party as their families always had? That That's going to be where this is, is going well, to be decided. Thank you so much. And this is a perspective we value. I you know, I'll have to read in on this, folks, to be honest. I think it's a soccer team John Farrow talks about about once every 12 or 14 <laughs> uh, weeks. But Tris Raphael, what is the affinity, the attraction of the prime minister to people who are generationally in doubt of the conservative elite of London. Yeah, I think this prime minister is going to try to distance himself from past conservative governments. And one way he does that is say, I will spend the money. Um, I'm yeah, not yeah. afraid to pour it into in the NHS. You know, this is something Americans, I think, um, you, you may not understand, but the NHS has an 80% approval rating in this country. 80% of people love the fact that they have health care free at the point of delivery. It's taxpayer funded. And you have a conservative government that is going you know, full on towards spending more money on that, more money on police, more money on education. That's how he's going to try to win over those voters who have said, you know, the conservatives, therefore, uh, you know, therefore the, the the wealthy voters in the southeast. And, uh, you know, he, he will try to appeal to that. He's also going to try to appeal to young voters. The conservatives have lost the youth vote um, in, yeah. in 2017. And he's going to try to bring them back. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, to the extent that he can do that, he's got very good chances. Trust, thank you so much. Writing for Bloomberg Opinion, can't say enough about the Game of Thrones angle from 24 hours ago as Therese Raphael dives into uh, this election to December 12th. I learned a lot there. I hope that was uh, good for all of you as well. She's with Bloomberg Opinion. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. 